Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 76 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Today's podcast came about for both sad and happy reasons. The sad part is that the writer Lee Maynard passed away on June 16th. Many of us learned about this on Facebook, where former West Virginia Writers President Kat Pleska announced the news, reporting that Lee had died in New Mexico with his son by his side. He had suffered in recent years from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but had also recently had a heart attack. Lee Maynard is one of West Virginia's most infamous literary sons, whose work has been both celebrated and decried, seemingly in equal measure. Beyond his writing, Lee was an amazing man, with a deep history of trying to improve the lives of his fellow human beings. Whether it was through aiding in the creation of the organization Outward Bound, which has helped thousands of people over the course of its existence, to creating and running a food pantry in Albuquerque, New Mexico. His writing was read by millions through the articles he wrote for Reader's Digest magazine, but it was his semi-autobiographical 1988 coming-of-age novel Crumb which placed him firmly on West Virginia's literary radar. The novel caused controversy for its brutal, scatological, and often unflattering depiction of a year in the life of a boy growing up in rural Appalachia. It was famously banned from sale at Tamarack, though I noted myself in a visit there a couple of weeks ago that whether they know it or not, they're selling the other two novels in the Crumb trilogy just fine. For all of the sex, violence, and combustion of outhouses Crumb depicts, however, it remains a beautiful novel and a love letter to West Virginia. It speaks volumes about the power of place, family, and friendship in our lives, strange and bewildering and infuriating as those things may sometimes be. Over the last 15 years, Lee was a frequent presenter at the West Virginia Writers' Summer Conference. Some of the best writing advice I've ever heard came from his workshops, much of it I incorporate into the creative writing classes I currently teach, as I do Lee's work itself. Back in 2007, during my time as president of the organization, I was given the opportunity to help make magic happen. Crumb had just been published as an audiobook through Mountain Whispers Audiobooks, and for the first time we were able to bring together the chief collaborators on that project by hosting Lee Maynard, Ross Ballard, the CEO, narrator, and engineer for Mountain Whispers, and a man whose work would become integral to this very podcast, musician Pops Walker, who provided the music for the adaptation. In fact, all of the music used in the West Virginia Writers podcast comes from Pops Walker's soundtrack to that adaptation. It wasn't long after their meeting, though, that Lee and Pops began a new collaboration, in which Lee read from his work, accompanied live by Pops and his guitar. As a witness to at least five of those collaborations myself, I can attest that they were magical. The two of them were kindred spirits and became fast friends for the rest of Lee's life. In recent years, Lee's published novels such as Cinco Becknell in 2013 and Magnetic North in 2015, but it was his 2009 memoir in fiction, The Pale Light of Sunset, 
scattershots and hallucinations in an imagined life that marked Lee's first appearance on the West Virginia Writers Podcast in a two-part interview with the aforementioned Cat Pleska. But Lee has cropped up in places here and there for the podcast over the years, too. Now, the happy reason this podcast came about is that I felt the urge to do something to honor Lee and thought that maybe assembling some of his podcast appearances and other recordings I have from over the years might do the job. As I was assembling the podcast, I got an email from Pops Walker, along with a beautiful piece that Pops had written about Lee. Pops requested that I do a podcast about Lee and include his piece and possibly even an interview with him for it. Way ahead of you, I wrote back. So for today's podcast, I'd like to start with the recording I made of Pops Walker reading the piece he wrote about Lee. Afterward, he and I talk about Lee himself and what he meant. And after that, I'll read a piece that Lee himself wrote, which will be explained in the interview with Pops. I then have a recording I made of Lee and Pops doing one of their famous tag team reading slash concerts, and we'll play the full interview Cat Plaska did with him back in 2009 concerning his book The Pale Light of Sunset. Now, as you might imagine, with a Lee Maynard podcast, there will be some colorful language to be heard, and I censor none of it, because Lee would have been pissed off if I had. At the very end of the podcast, I include a live reading that Lee himself did of maybe my favorite piece of his, called The Parlor. It's the opening chapter of The Pale Light of Sunset. It's a beautiful, sweet, and perfect piece of writing, and it's one I frequently use as an example of fine semi-autobiographical writing in my own classes. I'd actually forgotten that I had audio of Lee reading it in the first place. I can't think of a better way to end this particular podcast or to honor Lee Maynard's talent. I knew a belated eulogy. The Maynard I knew was a writer, and damn what a voice. Some folks color outside the lines. He saw no lines. He simply colored his words as saw fit. Some folks think outside the box. He ignored the box. Boxes were a form of containment, and he would not be contained. He refused and disdained change. He had the courage to write ugly truths, hard truths, yet he wrote of them with a roughly hewn beauty, and he might scoff at me for saying so, but he was indeed an artist. He mixed truth and fiction like no other. You never knew if he wrote of his history or of his enhanced dreams. As he succinctly put it, his works were scatter shots. I would add that his scatter shots were indeed an art form. On a June day in 2008, we met an long we're both convinced we'd known one another in former lives, and we laughed. Lord, how we laughed that day and on many occasions since. Over the years, it became patently obvious to us that one of our many lifelong roles is to make the other laugh. <clears throat> and on occasion, we shared stages, him reading from his work and me playing guitar. They were precious moments to me and to him. He told me so, and I knew from his smiles that it was so. We were gonzo mountaineers, and between the two of us, we shared well over a century of undetected crime. Outlaw artist is how we viewed one another, and we took pride in that assessment, but we laughed at it, too. Neither he nor I took ourselves too seriously. 
And it happened that a week or so before he left, we spoke on the phone. We made each other laugh again, and he said, I love you, brother. And when he passed in the wee hours of a June morning, 2017, a good friend John Boy and I were on the porch, drunk with computer around, picking guitars and laughing, unaware of his departure. I think Lee would have seen our Tom Foolery as a fitting tribute. I'm damn sure he would have laughed. On learning of Lee's death, a mutual friend concisely concluded, the world just became a less interesting place. Truer words were never spoken. Pops Walker, June 28, 2017. Bye, Lee. I love that. That kind of sums up a lot about Lee Maynard. That uh, And he's such a guy that's difficult to put everything into words. Well, I think he had, a, it was like a hundred different Lee Mainers, or his hundred friends. He was a little bit different from each one. And that was a part of his <clears throat> the treasure of knowing him that when he was dealing with you, he was dealing with you. He wasn't dealing with anybody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's one of his rare qualities. I talked to Kat Pleska at the West Virginia Writers Conference this year, and I asked how he was doing, and she told me that he had recently had a heart attack but had driven himself to the hospital. And I said, yeah, probably on his motorcycle. Yep. And when he called me and told me about it at the hospital, he wasn't sighing or, you know, bemoaning. He was just pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely pissed. (laughs) One more thing on the pile. Yeah, I can even laugh at him now. The last time I saw him was a couple of years ago. I mean, we've talked, you know, a hundred times since over the phone and you know, we swapped some, some uh, literature with each other. And uh, he came out here a couple of years ago with his buddy Steve and they were on motorcycles doing a cross country tour. And that was something to see those two old farts on the Harleys. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of the, the first time I heard of Lee Maynard was I rode, uh, I'm sorry, I read a story in probably the West Virginia Daily News about uh, Lee Maynard and Chuck Kinder doing a similar tour, albeit in a car, across West Virginia to read from their work, kind of an outlaw's reading tour. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. I didn't know Lee or his reputation. I had not heard of his work because I was just freshly moved to West Virginia myself. Mm -hmm. And reading about him and Chuck Kinder and kind of their adventures together, according to this article, made me think, that's a guy I would would like to to meet one day. And it wasn't long after that that I got involved with West Virginia writers. And then later, years later, when I was president, it occurred to me that he would be a good person to have come to the conference. And Rhonda White, our mutual friend, was way ahead of me on that and had suggested Lee and you. I remember Rhonda. And then a couple of years later suggested Chuck Kinder join you all as well. So we did eventually get the, the three of you guys together. Well, Lee said he'd like to go on an outlaws tour with me and Chuck, but Chuck got, his knees got busted up or something and was no longer that mobile. <laughs> so that, that was one of those things in your bucket list that never could you know make happen. And then he started getting, you know, we started getting sick. So uh, we probably ended up in jail. We'd have had to take some serious bail money with us. <laughs> have a bail bondsman on call. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, something you mentioned about Lee and your piece about him, that it was difficult to tell what in his writing was autobiographical and what he had had 
dreamed up, I believe is how you phrased it. His enhanced dreams. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. That is something that I have taken to heart as far as just writing in general and the teaching of the craft of writing. And I feel like I've learned a great deal from Lee Maynard, not only through his workshops that I've attended, but also through just reading his work and trying to, to suss out the details of how some of his stories came about. And then I have gone on to teach those. Uh, I teach in a federal prison and teach creative writing there. And one of the first things we do is read a piece from The Pale Light of Sunset, which talks about his birthplace, or at least the character in Pale Light of Sunset. Right. Which Lee says that book's about 80% true. Yeah, so was Crumb, about 80%. You know, <laughs> you, know you never knew where, <laughs> what was embellished. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. I bet, I bet that's something you would teach, because um, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. And I think what he did is he took a kernel of truth and planted it, and whatever fiction come up out of the pot was good enough for him. Mm -hmm. so. One of the things that struck me about Lee, just as a guy, is I, you know, as much success as he's had in his life and as much as he's done beyond the realms of writing, I remember Terry McNemer at the summer conference that I believe they gave Lee one of our Jug Awards, detailed all this stuff that Lee had done from Outward Bound to starting the food pantry in Albuquerque mm -hmm. and many other things that I had never heard of. I had never known he was involved in any of that because he was not a man to brag about any of that kind of thing. I had to pull it out of him. But once he loved you and trusted you, you got him to talking, he'd go for a while. God, many facets to him. He had a hell of a history, hell of a history. But sometimes he wasn't willing to share that with everybody. He told me some things that <clears throat> I won't pass on to anybody else because he entrusted me to keep them by, you know, keep it to myself. He told me some wild stuff, wild stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, things that he, he he wouldn't want to get out. <laughs> and for Maynard, you might imagine that would be some pretty serious stuff. <laughs> Well, I got to say, some of my best memories of the two of you were when you were playing along with Lee at the summer conference and also at the Lewisburg Literary Festival. You guys came down in, I believe, 2012. Yeah, we had fun. That was just an amazing night, especially since he got to read one of the stories from Crumb that he said he had never read publicly, which was the chapter about the apple slice. And we'll leave it at that. I remember it. I remember it because he told me what he was going to read, and I said, okay, i got something for it. Uh, so I just took an amalgam of blues stuff and just started you know, cutting and pasting from old pet blues things I did and uh, put it to his timber because we got pretty good at, you know, at matching you know, musical timber and literary timber. That was a fun night. That was a fun night. I'll tell you, there's a, there's a video of the thing at the Writers Conference. It's still up there somewhere if you search Lee Maynard and Potts Walker or whatever. And it's about... You know, He's reading uh, that Tarkhead story, and I think it goes for about 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. But somewhere about three three quarters of the way through it, he lost his place. And uh, I, I told him, sorry, buddy, I got you back. <laughs> and there's some some kind of exchange, you know, about you know not paying or you you don't pay shit or whatever. We, we were having a ball, you know, <laughs> we were having a ball. And that's fun, that was a funny damn thing. It just <clears throat> takes a while to get to on that video. I imagine I took that video. But I've got some audio recordings of uh, at least one of the 
collaborations y'all did at the conference, and I was looking up and down trying to find the one from the Literary Festival, but I'm not sure if I ever actually recorded that one. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to read it for you right now because it's about three pages long, but that year at 12, you know, at the song festival, he was there. Mm-hmm. He wrote a piece. He uh, came back and wrote a piece, you know, a couple of months later and sent it to me. And it's precious. And since you were there and got to see what was going on, you'll appreciate this thing. Awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll email this to you. <clears throat> Let's you read it. I don't need to do any more reading the record. I think the last time I saw Lee was at your place at the Shenandoah River Song Festival. And the last time he and I communicated was back in October. fellow in the area was inquiring as to the film rights for Crumb and asked me if I could talk to Lee and see what the situation on that was. And somebody does have the film rights to it currently. But it was good to, to talk to him, and I asked how he was doing, and he said that a little over a year ago I was given a year to live at the most. I've already exceeded my expiration date. So far, so good. Of course, that's what the guy who was fallen from a 30-story building said. So far, so good. <laughs> that made me smile for half an hour. Classic Maynard. Classic, classic. For most of the last 15 years, Pops Walker has hosted the Shenandoah River Song Fest on the banks of the Shenandoah River near his home in Luray, Virginia. There, he gathers together an eclectic group of musicians, often familiar faces from year to year, but always with newcomers as well. And there, for the couple of days, either in May or October, they perform an all-day concert, punctuated only by tremendously good food and the flow of libations. The last time I went was in 2015, and who should I find there but Lee Maynard? Lee had begun writing poetry. It's not a form that he tended to write during his life, but once in a while he said the mood would strike him. And the mood had struck him. He had been inspired by the previous Songfest he had attended in 2012 to write a poem about the Songfest. And so he penned Shenandoah River Songfest, May 2012. Music. They came for the music. They were not a collection of strangers. They were not strangers at all. A small gathering made known to each other, returning again and again over the years, returning through their love for each other and by their yearning for the music. And that made them family. Day laborers, artists, amateur cooks better than any professionals, nurses, lawyers, writers, people who knew how to frame a house, people who knew how to command armies, and did. Soldiers then, soldiers now, and still others of unknown skill and wisdom. There was no common age, no common dress, no common way of life, no common way of thinking. There was only their common want for the music and the uncommon current of their laughter. They sat in shade and sun and heat and rain, not caring about what was happening in any world of their knowing, except this one, here, now, by the river in the sun. For one bright weekend they sat beneath giant trees, made large by the flow from a crystal river, 
made emerald by the sun. They sat on lush grass beside babies sleeping on blankets, cushioned by the beating heart of earth, knowing that all babies, somewhere, sometime, should sleep next to the soft pulse of mother. The rain, gentle, caressing, and then more insistent, drumming softly and rhythmically on the canopies, the sound and underlying applause beneath the music, sent from some higher place to please and compliment the musicians. There was no wind, the rain coming straight and true to the people and the music, as the music came straight and true. The music. The music was clean, clear, and cleansing. It stirred the souls of any within hearing. There were no lights, no costumes, no flashes of emptiness having nothing to do with music. This was pure music, picked from mystic strings, tumbling down into the people as from some garden of pure joy, sung by voices unheard in concert halls, sung by voices unchanged by any artificial hand of man. The players ended their playing and then sat with the audience. The musicians were the listeners. The listeners were the musicians. There were no opening acts, no stars following. All were stars. All shone. The music began midday, ending when sheer exhaustion called a halt and people dozed against each other's shoulders. But one day was not enough. Some came early, the night before. More coming each year, gathering around an open fire. The music coming as it would, the talk filling the open spaces. The last day came and went, and still a tiny group lingered, the family smaller now, sitting almost quietly in the warmth of another bright morning, unwilling to let it go, unwilling to let it end. The music by the river. Should you need me? Uh, for those of you who have never seen this little duet before, um, let me do a little bit of explaining. Uh, Pops and I have done this on occasion. Uh, it it kind of breaks up my inevitable monotone delivery. And uh, so it's just little words of music. I originally told Kat that I would read from a, uh, a uh, new novel that uh, the press has. And they've been following me around uh, for a couple of days, making absolutely no comment about the future of the novel. But I decided against that. And what I want to read, with your permission, is a, a piece. Everybody know who George Brosi is, uh, Appalachian Heritage uh, editor in Berea. Uh, I've given George a lot of material, and that's what you do with George, you give George the material, but he doesn't pay for it. <laughs> and uh, he wanted something for his uh, June, it's a quarterly uh, literary reviews, I'm sure you know. He wanted something for his June uh, issue, and uh, there's a little piece that I've actually wanted to write for a long time, and uh, so I did, and George apparently likes it. You should like it, it's free. Um, that goes a long way with George. But um, I have to give you a little bit of setup on this story. 
The story is about a death. It's actually about it's actually about two deaths, and one of the deaths has already occurred when uh, when this thing starts. But in uh, my uh, my sixth great grandfather, a fellow by the name of Robert Maynard, uh, landed on the some wharf in South Carolina in the 1740s and um, kind of a restless sort. It didn't take him long to work his way northeast up into the mountains across the Alleghenies. And he settled in a place called Kaya's Creek, uh, Virginia. And uh, he had a son named James. This would be my fifth great-grandfather. And James fought in the Revolutionary War the plaque bearing his name and the names of other Wayne County men who fought in that war is displayed in the county courthouse in what is now Wayne County, West Virginia. Folks, my relatives are still down there in Caius Creek. My third great-grandfather, and I'm not making this name up, his name was James, also, Tarkig Maynard. <laughs> and Tarkig was a lieutenant in a company of state guards. He fought in the Civil War in a single skirmish. It took place a short distance from where he lived on Ridge Top, the cabin. He was killed uh, very close to where he lived. And uh, they buried him where he fell. The site is currently known as the Jones Cemetery. It is still there. And people come and take care of the cemetery, although nobody knows exactly who it is does that. Tarkeg's son Jesse was 12 when his father was killed, and like many of the Maynard men, uh, he lived a long, long life. He died when he was 78. His son, Garfield, was my grandfather. And this is a story of the death of James Tarkeg Maynard. What do you think, Pops? On the ridge above Caius Creek, Wayne County, West Virginia, August 9, 1862, that would be Wayne County, Virginia, in 1862, the shot that killed his daddy, the sound of it rode the heat off the high ridges and rolled down through the heavy timber. It burst out into the thick sunlight and tore through the pole fence and across the open ground into the side of the old ridge-top cabin like it had been sent there directly, making a sound against the logs like the raging of the devil out there, waiting. The boy was sitting inside on a rough plank floor, his arms around his knees, rocking slowly back and forth. He could smell the cold ashes in the wood stove, and he knew there was a pan there with hard cornbread in it, but he was not hungry. He thought maybe he would never be hungry again. He was staring at the thick hand whittled peg of the wall where his daddy's new blue uniform had hung only a short time before. The boy's mama had made the uniform, the same mama who had stood in the doorway, silhouetted against the hard mountain sky, watching his daddy ride away. The same mama who would not look at him lest he see the thin, glistening lines down her face. The same mama who kept telling him to go outside 
But it was too hot in the cabin. Stop looking at that empty pig. He'll hang his coat there anon, go down off the mountain and catch up with Aaron and the young'uns. Be safer down there. But the boy, only 12 years old, wanted to keep looking at the pig, a pig he had whittled, not quite straight, thinking maybe by some magic that was loose in the mountains that his daddy's uniform would come back there right now, and with it, his daddy. But they never did. His daddy had put on the new uniform and then put a saddle on an old swayback plow horse. The saddle did not have a pommel, but the man's mountain hard legs kept him securely on the horse. There was no scabbard for the long flintlock rifle, so his daddy rode away from the cabin with the rifle across the saddle, holding it easily with one blunt hand, fingers dark from work. He did not look back. His daddy was going off to the big war. His daddy would be a soldier. His daddy never got there. We think When the boy heard the shot, he knew he had been listening for it maybe for all of his 12 years. But he thought it would come in his dreams, not now, not in the bright morning sunshine, not in the growing hot light that would turn into the oven of thick summer in the mountains and send every living thing into the safety of heavy leafy overhangs. It seemed as though his legs began to work before he told them to, and the boy was up and jolting out of the cabin, crashing down the trail that started just outside the pole fence. The boy was running hard, arms flailing, mouth open, gasping for air as only a terrified boy can run. His baggy pants flapped with each of the ungainly strides and he thought the Confederates would hear him and hear all of that noise and maybe shoot him too. But then he remembered he was only 12 and too young for them to bother killing. He knew exactly where to go, not more than a couple of hundred yards down the old trail, knew the slight narrow part in the already narrow path knew the limbs that would be hanging over it, forcing his daddy to lean forward on the horse, not seeing. He knew where he would be, where he would be lying, his daddy, James Maynard. Some called him Tarkay. The boy never knew what they called him that. The boy kept hearing that shot over and over in his head, and he knew nothing good could come out of anything that sounded like that. That one shot, not ever. When he got there, there was a solitude, almost a peace that lay over the place. A feeling that something had been finished there in the dirt, and there was no use in pondering on it anymore. He stopped a few steps in the narrow place, sweat running down into his eyes, his heart making hollow drumming sounds. His daddy lay on his side in the middle of the trail, his face mottled by shade, his eyes and brows wrinkled in a kind of scowl that he always seemed to have, even when he was happy. His head was propped on one of his arms as though napping, only resting, not in surrender to what must have known was coming. The boy could see the black hole in the center of the blue coat. The old rifle lay beside him on some leaves as though someone had carefully put it there, not wanting the rifle to lie in the dirt like his daddy. His daddy was dead, the boy knew. A dirty rifle would no longer matter, would not be something to think on. The boy slowly approached that place of death. 
boy did not understand how it happened or what made it happen, but sometimes he just knew. There were times when he knew the deer was there before he ever saw that huge brown eye through the bush the deer was hiding behind. Knew the turkey inside stepped out of the branch of the tree before he even knew which tree. And now he knew the other was there. He could feel it. The boy knew that all he had to do was raise his head from his daddy's shoulder and the other would be there, and he was. The other man was staring at the boy, unblinking. He was not trying to hide. He stood off the side of the trail, some shade covering him, but the boy could see his dirty face, torn places on his ragged gray uniform, and the boy thought maybe his shoes were not army shoes. There were no buttons on his coat. The man did not have a cap. His shaggy hair fell down over his smudged forehead, but he made no motion to push it back. But the man had a rifle that he held in both hands. He did not point it at the boy. The man stepped out into the light, stared at the boy. The boy stared back, not moving his hand from the hole in his daddy's chest. It was a moment in the lives of men when nothing was supposed to happen, and nothing did. They held themselves silently for long heartbeats. Gradually, the noises of the woods came back, easing gently into their hearing, as though the forest had seen what it had seen, and now it had to get on with other things. Important things. Things more precious than the breath of a single man who lay on the dirt and breathed no more. see the flint, but the rifle was not cocked, and the boy knew there would be no powder in the pan. The man's eyes followed the boy's. His mind was in the boy's mind, and he knew the great will of the boy to pick up a rifle that would not fire, and pick it up anyway, and point it, and maybe the sheer force of the universe would heat the gun, and make it fire, and avenge his daddy. But the boy did not. There was no power in the universe. He knew that. The boy closed his eyes. The man eased farther out into the sunlight. The boy, eyes still closed, heard his soft steps and waited for the dying hard knock of the rifle barrel across his skull. He tightened his grip on his daddy, the blood from the hole easing out between his fingers. He was ready. He did not care. The knock never came. The boy heard the other steps, growing soft and fading, the man moving away through the woods, not on the trail. He lay like that, the boy, not knowing what to do. He lay like that, his eyes closed, until he could hear the concentrated buzzing of flies, and he knew he would have to do something. But his daddy had been a grown man. The boy was only 12, and he knew he could not move his daddy. It was only his mother and the kid. His mother. He would have to tell his mother, but in the small inner reaches of his being, he knew, he was sure, that she was already a woman in great, silent, timeless mourning. The uniform would never come back to hang on the cracked peg. 
He opened his eyes. It was time to do whatever he had to do. Something had changed at the right. Leaning up against the sock was a small, shiny metal bottle. Hot flats. Glowing golden in the mountain sunlight. Thank you. 
this loss by thirty. Seventy-eight years ago, Mr. on 
I'm sorry. The character uh, goes on in this uh, book, uh, which is tentatively called Scummers, and it's kind of an odd, crunchy title, but uh, there are only two kinds of military personnel on this post. I was in. How many people have been in the military at one form or another? Yeah, right on there. Um, there were ordnance people who handled all of the nuclear warheads that were stored in this facility. And then there were MPs who were there to guard the nuclear warheads. And the ordnance people. And themselves. And uh, anyway, the ordnance people referred to the MPs as scholars. I don't know why they would do that. Funeral detail. Maybe that was my day off the post, at least for the day. The MPs always pulled funeral detail, honor guard. A bunch of guys looking sharp in dress uniforms, going into Geneva or Seneca Falls, standing beside the grave of some guy they had not known, trying hard, trying hard to be respectful. Sometimes actually being, well, the respectful. Looking stern and sober. Sometimes they actually were sober. Firing blanks from M1 Garands, that was a fun part. A couple of guys, uh, days earlier, some guy committed suicide inside one of the storage structures. Hanged himself with a bra the size of a hammock. We never really found out if he was a soldier or a civilian. And no one ever found out where the bra came from. All we knew was that there would be a funeral detail. I stood right next to Starker. This is like standing next to the devil. I stood right next to Starker beside the grave. It was a Hitchcock movie. The graveyard was old and tightly packed. It had rained the night before, and oversized headstones loomed in the heavy mist. No move to move around, no moon, no room to move around, to stand back at a respectful distance. But the lack of room did not matter. There was practically no one else there. The preacher said some things I did not really hear, and then looked at the widow, a great-looking woman who stood expressionless in the mist and who did not have a tear in her eye. She did not move, and she said nothing. For some reason, the funeral guys had already lowered the coffin into the ground, and the man took, a widow, took the widow's arm and tried to get her to look down into the hole, but she would not. Staring straight ahead across the hole, staring through us as though we were panes of colored glass, tinting her view of her future. There was nothing else to do but get on with it. The preacher looked at the sergeant who was in command of the funeral detail. The sergeant brought us to attention and started through the commands that would end with fire, and we would duly in unison fire off our blanks. On the first order to fire, I pulled the trigger and felt the rifle buck against my shoulder, and then I noticed that Starker had taken his hand from his rifle, his left hand, and dropped it to his crotch, where he was carefully squeezing various and sundry things down there while looking at the widow. The widow did not notice. The sergeant did, but the sergeant did not know what to do. The sergeant brought us to fire again. We fired again. Starker grabbed his crotch again. <laughs> this time the widow noticed and promptly fainted. Hit the ground, sliding on her ass toward the grave on a slick layer of fake grass that covered the raw dirt at the edge of the hole. 
her legs dropped into the grave. As her body moved forward, her skirt slid up to her thighs, and then above her hips, she was wearing dark nylons and a garter belt. But no underpants. <laughs> Only a quick grab by a preacher kept her from falling in on top of her husband's casket. Many didn't want to seem to let her go. <laughs> a couple of other guys grabbed her, and while they were hauling her limp body away from the grave, Starker dropped the muzzle of the rifle toward the coffin and fired off another round point blank into the shiny coffin lid. The sound of the shot froze everyone in motionless silence. Starker's back to me was back to me, and so I'm sorry, Starker's back was to me, and I could not see the expression on his face, but I knew what was there. Absolutely nothing. I edged forward as I looked into the grave. I was curious to see if the fire and powder from the blank had done any damage. And that's when Starker kicked my ass over the edge of the grave and down into the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Screaming, 
his heavy voice rolling out over the table. Grenade! Grenade! In the split second it takes to think about such things, I thought maybe it wasn't a grenade, but what the hell, under the circumstances, I did what everybody else in the mess all did. I got the hell out of there. The fastest way out was through the big front doors that led to the rectangle. And I was through and down the short flight of steps and out into the grass, running hard when I felt bad because I left Tucker sitting back there, a huge bulk of them just waiting for the grenade. Only when I looked around, there was Tucker 10 yards ahead of me. <laughs> out in the middle of the rectangle, we waited. MPs and ordnance guys hunkered down on their heels, watching the empty mess hall. There was no explosion. And then Bannerman came slowly strolling down the sidewalk, in no particular hurry, casually heading for the mess hall. He grinned as he went by. <laughs> What do you love most about West Virginia? Ooh, that, you know, that's, that's kind of hard. I, I think that... Um, it, you know, Doug Imbrogla said um, he thought West Virginia had been portrayed as this sort of saccharine place with the smoke coming out of the chimney and your feet up in front of a fire, and he knows better. Well, so do I. Those images never occur to me. What I like most about West Virginia is that it might be one of the most real places I've ever been. I mean, what you see is what you get. Sometimes you don't like what you get. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't like what you see. Nevertheless, it's real. There's, there's no subterfuge. There's no, you know, cute little layers of cosmetic on the top that you have to get through. You get the real thing right up front. Yes, you do. And I think um, in a strange sort of way, when I've traveled out from this state, I'm just like that too. It doesn't occur to me to candy coat anything or appear other than what I am. And... I'm, you know, they they kind of look at us like, you're just a little bit odd, aren't you? <laughs> they don't really know how, what to do with us. I know, us. but don't you love that? I, I do, mean, because I think, I think this is the most fabulous state to yeah. ever come from. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter if you stay or go. <clears throat> you know, it's just a I, wonder. It's. I agree, and I also agree that people look at you and say, you're just not right straight down the middle, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> No, I'm not. Uh, I'm straight, but not right down the middle. That's true. Uh, how did you choose the title for your new book? It came from a line in one of the stories, um, I think I've read and I think it. it's also appropriate. You know, it's all of us get along towards sunset at one point or another, and I know I'm certainly getting there. I've got, I got two or three more books in me, I think, but um, I'm quite sure I don't have as much time to work on them as I used to. So I thought it was appropriate, and it was kind of a life track. Uh, you know, the arc of that book is um, kind of beginning to end sort of thing, and I tried not to make it dull. Uh, and it certainly, I, I don't ever want it referred to as a real memoir because it's really not. And um, But that's that's basically it. I mean, in one of the stories, he's I think he's sitting on a mountaintop and... 
musing about something in the pale light. So that's that's where it came from. Okay. Scatter shots and hallucinations in an imagined life. Scatter shots? Well, when you look at the book, it's just this collection of, you know, uh, uh, stories year by year by year by year. And um, that's pretty much scatter shots. That, that's what my great uncle used to call shotgunning. You know, you and I take a shotgun and go squirrel hunting, but he would he'd call it scatter shooting. Oh, okay. Because the the shots scattered, the, the shot scattered. Yes. And um, hallucinations. Oh, I've had a number of those. <laughs> I have really had a number of those. I've had a few myself. <laughs> uh, it, it's a wonderful title. I do, I do, I do like that. And. Uh, and as far as the memoir is concerned, you know, there's been people who, who found out I was going to talk to you and interview you, and they'd say, I suppose we're too sophisticated to ask him which parts are true. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not very sophisticated, but I'm not asking. <laughs> and, and the truth of the matter is, is I'm not really curious about that. I'm not curious about what's true and what well, isn't. good. I'm not, because I think I understand... You know, as a writer, we have a right to do with what we what we need to do with our material to turn it into the story. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. You and I and Kinder are on the same page. Yes. We'll do anything to make the story better. Yes. And it is a story. That's yes. the whole that's the whole thing. We're telling a story. I'm not trying to educate anyone. I'm not trying to convert anyone to some particular kind of thinking. I'm just telling a story. Yes. And so uh, what parts are true? You know what Chuck says? What's that? Well, it's in the front of that book. Oh. Chuck says all stories are true yes. if they are well written. Question is, what are they true about? Yes. And I thought that was one of the smartest things I'd ever heard. And Even for Kinder, that was smart. <laughs> you know? He's going to hear that, you know. Yeah, he will. I know he will. I'll pay for that big time, believe me. I'll pay for that. Well, tell me, what do you what do you love, or do you love anything more than writing? Just family. Family. Um. I've done I've done so many things that you know I guess for most of my life I've been some kind of an adrenaline junkie I know that's a cliche but um, I was always afraid I would miss something so there's a lot of things I love but I'm not sure I love anything more than writing except the family um, some stuff comes close you know you sit around cat and you say boy you know I I think I'll just be a full-time writer. I'm not going to do anything else. And then I think, wait a minute. What am I going to miss if I'm sitting in this little room, you know, plunking around on keyboard keys? I mean, you, you need to go do stuff. You need to find out about stuff. You need to experience stuff. And I loved all that stuff. Yeah. You know, I love yeah. the mountains and the rivers and the, even the, the jungles. In fact, the jungles... Mountains and rivers never scared me. Jungles, a little bit of time I spent in them, mm -hmm. scared me. And I think it's because maybe I felt a little too close to them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, um, I, I want to spend more time in them if I ever have the time. But that's, those are all things that, I mean, I just, I like those things. Well, a writer has to have a context to put everything in. I mean, I think so. There's the life experience, but then you need to put that against a greater background. So that experiential, that going out and experiencing, experiencing life, you know, just plunging yourself in and say, well, let's see how that goes. Exactly. I think that, that informs the writing. I think it does. 
and and to me to me that was that was the great fun part the writing itself particularly first draft material i it's agonizing yeah. it's agonizing i mean but i love rewriting strangely enough mm-hmm. because story's done i know i know how it works mm-hmm. now i get to put the polish on it and you know kick this around and pull that out and put something else in. i mean I love that it's like reorganizing I don't know your 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 sock your, drawer. Your sock drawer, yeah, yeah. Let's put the green sock, green socks. Green socks. But it, it's yeah. To me, I I when I get to the rewrite part, I know that the really agonizing work is over. Now I get to have fun with the story, yes, and how to tell a better story. Uh, I've always had that attitude too. I've always wanted to put myself in too adventure or sometimes even in dangerous situations. Have you done that? Yes, I have. Uh, mm-hmm. I was in Cairo in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first time I traveled abroad back in 94 and I, uh, my friend was living over there at the time. She invited me over and we got into some situations that most women wouldn't put themselves in, walking into places that were, you know, maybe not entirely safe. Um, well, and then, and, you know, you're an attractive blonde and obviously not Egyptian. I suspect you stuck out a little bit. I, I did, just a little bit. And, and you know, I walked into this perfume shop, and there's nobody there. And they don't turn on the lights until you get into the store because they're safe on the electricity. Mm-hmm. And there was an Egyptian man behind the counter that must have been well over six feet tall. Most Egyptian men, and I don't want to characterize everybody, but the majority of them are not much taller than I am. And so here's this very large Egyptian man standing behind the counter, and I'm like... I'm not even going to buy perfume, but this is so freaking. And then three more <laughs> men just come out of nowhere, you know. And here I'm, me and my friends standing there, like, okay, this is in the Khan Al Khalili. We could disappear, and no one would ever find us. Right? Yeah, you know, we we weren't probably in any danger, but it was the idea, and just that experience, that adrenaline rush. Yeah, that, but, but you know what? Now you're telling me that story. Yes. You know, if you hadn't felt that, if there had been no emotion attached to that thing, it's not worth the telling. Absolutely. Now you're telling me the story. Yes. And to me, that's really important. Yes. As I was reading uh, The Pale Light of Sunset and following the protagonist through various adventures, uh, there's an, a good bit of violence that happens to mm. this protagonist and that he, at times, perpetrates eventually through his life. And as a female, I, you know, I could talk to some of my friends about, you know, the violence in the book or this sort of thing, and they'll say, I don't read that. I don't, I don't want, I don't read much violence. Mm-hmm. And I'll admit, I don't think anybody really likes violence, but at the same time, I found myself associating and feeling as if I were in the place of the protagonist, you know, really identifying with that protagonist even in the violent moments. Well, unless you're a pretty warped individual, violence is something that usually comes to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're really warped, you can take the violence to other people. Tried not to do that, but for some reason or other, it shows up in my life, and I don't know why that is. I don't know, you know, I mean, do I attract lightning? Yeah, maybe so. But... Um, I've I've heard that comment before about my material, and I don't have an answer for that. All I can tell you is that that when things happen and I write about them, if they are violent, okay, I'm all right with that. 
because to me the violence is seldom gratuitous. You know, there's always it, it's always part of the story, and there's always a, a reason for it. It just doesn't happen. And if it, if that is the case, and if I can keep it going in that direction, then I don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. One of my severest critics is a woman who grew up uh, on the East Coast from a very wealthy family. And she said to me, nobody has all of that stuff happen to them. And I'm thinking, <laughs> nobody grows up as protected as you did. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. So... Um, are some of these stories violent? Yeah, but the violence is merely a piece of the story. It is not the story. Right. Right. It, no, it definitely wasn't the story. And and I think that's why I could continue to identify with the protagonist, even though I'm female. I could still picture myself in this. And that your character struggles with that. So oh, none does. of it is, is gratuitous. And I think that's why... You know, I can yeah. still identify with him. If you read those stories, he doesn't he doesn't rush into that kind of stuff. It it, it, it usually finds him. He never really intends right. for it to be there. Right. But it is. Do you ever encounter other writers from West Virginia where you know, when you go out, you know, where you live in Mexico or out in the country, the rest of the country? Never. Never. And uh you know, my some of my favorite writers today, Kat, are West Virginians and Somebody said, well, you just like them because, because you're all from the same state. No, that is not why I like them. You know, when you read uh, Kinder or Richard Curry or Jane Ann Phillips yes. or Denise Jardina, I mean, the list goes on and on. And Well, you know, it doesn't go on and on. I, I suppose if we were from New York or California, the list would go on and on. But we're not. We're West Virginians, and there are damn few of us. But i got to tell you, those people that I read from West Virginia are extraordinarily high-quality people. Uh, but I don't encounter them because there aren't enough of us to encounter. Okay. Yeah. I've never that. run That's into awesome. another writer from West Virginia any place else except here. Or when I go see Chuck in sure. Pennsylvania. Sure. You know, 40 miles across the border. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, not being far away. No, no. What about your writing schedule? You know, um... When, where, how long? Don't have one. Okay. I've never been that guy that said, "Up oh, seven o'clock in the morning, I got to go to work," you know, and go in and sit down. I've uh, maybe it's a lack of discipline. Uh, well, obviously it's a lack of discipline, but um, to me, I have to feel that need. Believe me, I don't want to go do it. Uh, you don't? No, no, I don't want to go do it, but. Um, because it's really hard work. Yes, it is. But uh, I also have to go do it. I, I know that much, that I have I have to go do it. But I, I can't do it on a schedule. I have to feel some sort of emotional buildup that if I don't go write it down, it will just bug the hell out of me until something else happens. So I don't care what time of day it is. I don't care where I am. I've written on riverbanks and offices and and saloons and cars and I mean it just uh, I've always got a pad and a pencil and uh, when I have to get it down that's when I have to get it down and I don't know why it works that way for me but maybe that's for me that's part of the game. I, I do the same thing. I don't have a regular schedule especially with my creative work. If it's an article for a magazine or something like that that's different. 
but it's it's not it, it's I'm constantly working on it in the back of my head. Yeah. I mean it's, yeah. it's just constantly yeah. formulating back yeah. there and every now and then it's got to come out. I got to get it down. And and now that I'm getting a little older, I'm terrified I'm going to forget it <laughs> if I don't well, write it down. <laughs> yes, I carry I have two of those. Tape recorders? Yeah. Okay. And and uh I do actually quite a lot of writing while I'm driving. That's a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I grab that little thing and put all my timeless prose into it. Uh, but um, I don't. Um, I don't know, Cat. It, it's. I'm. I'm exactly with you when I am doing. When I wrote for the Digest, and I had to meet a deadline. Then mm-hmm. you will sit your butt down and write. Yes. You don't have the luxury of saying, oh, "I'll get to it tomorrow." They're going to pull it. You're, you're done, mm-hmm. and uh, you miss out on those nice paydays that yes. Reader Digest can provide. Um, but anyway, um, there's I don't have a schedule. What What do you like to read? Can I read everything? Mm-hmm. I read the back of cereal boxes. I do too. I mean, I <laughs> and I don't even eat cereal, but I read the back of the box. I, and certain certain times I'm in the library, I'll even read the shampoo bottle oh, if there's nothing God, else. It's just, it's just. Uh, I I love fiction. I love to read fiction. I love to read. Um, in terms of fiction, I love to read stuff that would fall under the guise of literature. Yes. But I will read, uh, you know, mystery stories. Mm-hmm. I love to read good nonfiction, but it better be well written because I don't have a lot of patience if it's a drudge. I agree. So, and I love history. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I love history. People are always sending me recommendations. Got to read this, you got to read that. Uh, so I have a stack of books about four feet high. I do too. That I'm trying to get through, knowing I'll never get there, but. We need to be as old as Methuselah. Yeah. But then think of all the books that are going to be <laughs> written in That's those right. 900 years. We never get caught up. That's right. <laughs> well, there, there's one story. You, we were talking about what's true and what's not. There's one story in there that is absolutely 100% true. I did not embellish it in any way, shape, or form. Care to take a guess what it is? Well, I would have guessed the one where you were born or the one where your father died. No. Burying Elisha? No, it's the one about the hornets. Oh, oh my gosh. The, 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 the first encounter the with first, the hornets? The first hornet. Hornet I, one. That was just, I don't know how, how you survived that. Uh, if your mother I, stopped counting at 70 stings and yeah. you were a small yeah. boy, I don't know why that didn't kill you. I don't either. She was crying, was, for one she thing. Uh, she probably thought I was going to die. I was like, I looked like a balloon. I'm sure you did. And uh, to this, now, I was preschool, Kat, and yeah. I remember that crystal you have to. clear. Now you have to be. Yeah, you have to clear. remember that. My very first memory, in fact, I just got revising that chapter in my memoir, is actually about watching my great-grandmother die. Mm-hmm. And she she had this white light that washed over her, and there was a kind of a golden, faint golden light around her little tiny body. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if, I was five, and it seems as if that's, the moment that I came into being, as I watched her die, it was when there was an awakening, an aware, a consciousness or something. Mm-hmm. I'm suddenly aware that I'm separate from everything else and I am who I am. Mm-hmm. And those mem- moments, I don't care how, early, how young you are, you know, it's kind of like where you begin. Mm-hmm.
You began with hornets. I, I began, began with my with great grandmother hornets. dying. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I didn't begin in 1936. I was yeah. a newborn. I, you know, yes. Most of that comes from what my brother dug up. And is it just you and your brother? Are the only two siblings? Yeah. You wrote. You keep wanting to take your writing to to new risky places, but it's hard. So why keep pushing? I think that's what we do. It's what you do. Mm-hmm. I think if we get satisfied with what we've done, it's probably over. You know. <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I think. Do you realize that writing is is one of those things that you can keep doing as long as you can think. Yes. I mean, you can't you can't keep being a, a, a what a surgeon. Sooner or later, your hands won't take it. But uh, writers, I mean, as long as we can think, we can probably keep doing it, but we better keep pushing it or there's no reason for us to do it. Well, because the world doesn't need another book. No. God, no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Absolutely it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I, I perform a, a historical character. I interpret her. Her name mm-hmm. is Frances B. Johnston. Mm-hmm. She was a famous photographer at the turn of the last century. Mm-hmm. When she died when she was 88 years old in 1952, and she was doing her photography up within a, just a few months of her mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. And it's like writing. As long as you can hold your head up and have a th- clear enough thought to get it on the paper, I can't imagine ever stopping. Well, I, I fear the day. Well, yeah, me too. And, and I think what we better keep in mind is that I really believe that within the natural balance of things, when you stop producing and stop performing and stop being useful, you just get stopped. Yes. And, uh, you know, both my grandfathers did that. They retired and... And died. And died. And a very short period of time. Yes. And, And, I mean, maybe that scares me a little. But not really, because I think I think as long as I can think, I'll keep trying to tell these dumb little stories. You know, and, <laughs> well, these wonderful little stories. <laughs> what reaction do you anticipate after all, all these years after Crumb uh, to your to your new book? The, the new book being Pale Light. Yes, the new book being Pale Light. You know, I don't know. It, it's a, as you know from reading it, Cat. It's very different from uh, Crumb or Cannibals. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse Stone's not even in there. You know? No, he's not. That's right. <laughs> well, he is, actually. Yeah. Because there's a chapter of Adacrum, the, the goodbye thing at the river. Yes, yes. Except that's that, right. you know, that's from Crumb, but he was not named in that book. Oh, okay. Remember, he was nameless. That's right. That's right. And he didn't get a name until Cannibals, and then okay. I had to give him the name. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Uh, people that have read this so far have liked it a lot, and uh, I just hope that continues. Um, where the book will go... Cat, I don't have any idea. Yeah. I never do. I just... Not something we can really worry about because we can't do anything about it. Not my it. job. It is what it is. It is what it is. It's not your job. It's not my job. Yeah. My job's over. It's up to somebody else now. I I went off on this tangent while I was reading your book and was thinking about, uh, referencing the, what I mentioned earlier about the violence, I was thinking about Cormac McCarthy mm-hmm. and particularly No Country for Old Men. Have mm-hmm. you seen that movie? Seen the movie, read the book. Yes. And and it strikes me in McCormick McCarthy's books that there is evil there, and violence happens mm-hmm. because of that evil, but the evil doesn't seem to have... He personifies evil as just this thing that moves across the landscape, and it has to do 
bad things. There's yeah. no consciousness behind it. That's what evil it. does. That's yeah. right. And what's scarier is the violence that happens, like in pale light, uh, not by the protagonist, but by other people. Mm-hmm. That is a conscious evil. Mm-hmm. And I think that's scarier, mm-hmm. even than what McCarthy well, sure did. I mean, a lot of, like in, in McCarthy's uh, The Road, yeah. and, and I am envious as hell. I, I, I wanted to write that book. Yes, <laughs> 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 then we all. <laughs> I wanted to write that book. I've thought about that book for years before, you know, and I just never got around to it. But no, I'm not saying that I could have re- equaled his feat there. But, um, you know, there was, that was a scary book. Every page, I thought, when is the bad crap going to come down? Um, but in in the when when the protagonist moves through pale light, the violence happens not always because of evil per se. It can happen because that's what happened at the time. It's like those kids. Um, in the river scene where he's leaving Crumb, yes. and they and they attempt to beat him up, and they do a pretty good job of it. You know what? Those kids weren't evil. No, that's what you did. Yes, and and so uh, some of that stuff is just part of everyday life, and, and there's violence all around us. And basically, I just if it happens to the protagonist, I almost said me. If it happens to the protagonist, I've been very careful about not well, saying I, you. I, I I've been very careful about saying I know, protagonist. I've, I've noticed that, and I thank you for that. <laughs> and that's very accurate. Yes. Yeah. Well, even if it was a memoir, you're still not quite the same person. I mean, the narrator's never really the author and yeah. the narrator are different, and that's yeah. a, that's a distinction that's difficult to to grasp. But I think it's very important because just just in the act of writing it, it's a, it's another slice of us. When we do that, and, uh, it is. Uh, I think that the quote in the front of the book, uh, "The end is nothing; the road is all." Is that where Cormac McCarthy got that quote? Uh, do you think? I don't know, but but Willa Cather said that. Yes, Willa uh, Cather. And um, I, you know, and I, boy, that is just so succinct. And it's like, and you can put any kind of words in education. Education is not a destination; it's a journey. Life is not a destination; it's a journey. Yes. And so she put it more eloquently in a very few words. and, and um, yes, She did, because I the just, journey is the thing. The journey is the thing. Yeah. I mean, did you ever go on a trip and when you got where you were going, it was good and you were glad you were there, but when you get home, what you talk about is the trip. <laughs> you know, oh, we saw this, we did this, we had, you know, and, and it's like, here's a classic example. You go on a river trip. Really good river trip through the Grand Canyon. And you get to the end, you get to the destination. There's nothing there. <laughs> the whole thing was the trip. That's There's right. really nothing there at yes. the end of that trip. It's a takeout place that'll put you in mud up to your knees. <laughs> and that's it. It's a, it's a slog and a pain in the ass to get out of there. It was the trip. Absolutely. So to me, that's a metaphor for just about everything that yeah. I think happens to me. It's, yeah. it's the trip. Yes. I, when I went to Cairo, you know, people say, oh, did you see the pyramids? And I said, yes, I did. You know, it was fascinating to put your hand right on the yeah. side of one of those and say, maybe a pharaoh had put their hand yeah. right there. 3,000 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But to me, it was the little things that happened. I went into a shop, and I was, you know, getting ready to haggle because that's a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you must haggle. And uh, this man stepped into the door, and he just blew me away at how, how incredibly gorgeous he was. His eyes were gold. And I, I'm standing there, you know, eyeballs, big saucers, looking at that. Then he disappears out the door. I leave my girlfriend standing. I go out the door following. I'm just like, how can any human being be that gorgeous? Yeah, exactly. You know? Like a god. And I'm, you know, I'm running out in the street. And I can't find him. He's not there. You know, I go, I go down the street and I realize that in a heartbeat, I'm going to be lost. And this was way before cell phones. You know, yeah, there was absolutely. no way. And I thought, oh, shit, I have to give up this job. <laughs> but I, I mean, is he real? I just wanted to touch him. Like, are you real? Well, just think about that for a minute, Kat. You were running outside looking for God. <laughs> I was. And if you'd have been there, you'd have found him. Too. Yes. <laughs> God, I would have just said to this, like, can I just stare at you just a little bit longer? <laughs> That's great. Although know, those are the things that's that's what happens. See, the that's the see, that's the story. Yes. That's the story. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, I'm happily married, and I've told my husband that story. You know, he's just like, yeah, well, you know, he's he's very accommodating to my sense of imagination. Well, he's a good man. Yes, he is. Who has influenced your writing? Do you think? Do you think there is one? You know, I, I the people compare my writing to, like I said earlier, to some really heavyweight folks, but I don't really, I'm not sure anyone has influenced it. I, I just try to write whatever comes out, and um, I guess if I wanted to be like somebody, it would probably be more like uh, Hemingway. I love reading Faulkner. But he's a little obtuse every now and then. Yeah, he is. And, you know, I don't, to me, obtuseness is not the purpose of the writing. Mm -mm. But as far as influences, Kat, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that I ever picked up a book, with the exception of Hemingway. And, you know, Hemingway fell out of favor there among the uh, people who didn't like his violence and his darkness. And, and God, I loved it. Oh, I do too. I'm a huge it. fan of Hemingway. Oh, me too. I think I, mean, I love your writing more because there's a lyricism to it. There is a depth of understanding of human nature that it's not just the protagonist moves here and the protagonist moves over there and does this and does that. There's a sense of awareness that you include in your writing that's it's that interior life. You talking about me? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you write prettier than Hemingway, okay? <laughs> thank, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that very much. You do. There's a poet. There's a there was a poetry to your writing that I think um, is not in Hemingway's that I particularly like. Yeah, Hemingway would have said, "I'm not macho enough." When I read my <laughs> stuff, I think, "Hi, the guy's nuts." You know? <laughs> so tell me. What is one or two things that you know for sure? Wow, Kat, I don't know anything for sure. And I don't know anyone in this world who does, and if they say they do, they're wrong. <laughs> or lying. Or lying. 
<laughs> you know, I, I really, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, some people, the older they get, boy, the more positive they are about such and such, and I'm just the bloody opposite. The older I get, the less I understand I really know. So I don't, I don't know that I know other than some uh, laws of physics that are pretty hard to disprove. <laughs> you know, if you drop something, that's probably going to hit the ground. Yeah. But other than that, and I'm sure you're talking about writing or, or the artistic world, I don't, Kat, I don't know anything for sure. I, um, and you know what? I think I would be very disappointed if I did, if I thought I knew something for sure. The whole uncertainty of life, to me, is kind of one of the great mysteries and one of the great things. What's going to happen next? If a guy said to me, I am a, uh, I can see the future. And if you want, I'll write down, you know, when you're going to die and how. I don't want to know that. I don't want to know that. No. Good heavens. Who would want to know that? Not me. Hell, I want to. I want to step out of the boat on the riverbank someday and just fall over dead. You know, I just you know. absolutely don't want to die sleeping with my boots on. I, I mean, you know, in bed. I mean, I, I just I want to be in the middle of something. D- Doug Imbrogno asked me uh, in writing um, if if I could dictate this, where do I want to die, and how? Uh, or I think he said, where do I want to die? And and I think. My response to that is, I want it to be in the warmth and the bright sunshine. Beyond that, I don't care. Yeah. I don't want to die in the dark and the cold. Yeah. No. You know. No. I don't want to. You know, rats die like that. I, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to die like that. I think I want to be in the middle of a whoopee. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Just right in the middle of whoopee. <laughs> Right in the middle of it, you and know. Just fall over stone cold. <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and I also think that the older I'm getting, the more I realize I don't know, and the more exciting that is. You, you know, when you're younger, you're nervous about that. You know, as you're trying to find your way in life and world. But now it's like, oh, damn, this is, this is a blessing. This is cool. Yeah, I, mean, I get to figure this out. I get to remain curious. Well, sure. Where, where, is, where is the mystery and the excitement if you're so damn sure you know everything? Yeah. I mean, what's that all about? That ain't me. That ain't you. No, it's not me. So, I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, um, we just remain students of life. I hope so. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I sort of look at people that they're so sure they know everything, and I'm thinking, pal, you've got a big surprise coming. Yes. It could be the next five <laughs> minutes, you know. Absolutely. Thank you, Lee. I'm You're really quite welcome. This. this has been more fun than one old guy ought to have. <laughs> Good. parlor. I am born in the parlor of my grandmother's house. I come screaming into the world among the only valuable things my grandmother owns. There's a small settee on which no one is allowed to sit, a tiny table of unknown origin, a pump organ which no one plays, a strange polka dot vase with a string of white glass coiling around it, doilies on everything, and me pulled into the world by a midwife I would never know and would never meet again. I am born in West Virginia. I am a West Virginian, and as all of us are, I am 
a child only of West Virginia and of nowhere and of no one else. As I grow older and my mother brings me in from the mountains to visit my grandmother, I realize in my child mind that my grandmother's house is the only place in the world where I feel safe, where I feel comfortable. Each time, before I even go inside, I can smell the biscuits my grandmother bakes, larger than any biscuits I have ever seen, larger than my hand. My grandmother feeds me biscuits and homemade jelly, and then I go back outside to play. There is a cherry tree in the front yard, and a small grape arbor stands sagging in the sunlight at the side of the house. There's a small garage, a shed, and a chicken house, and a vegetable garden where my grandmother grows what her family eats. I love to play in the tall grass just beyond the garden, spending hours scratching in the dirt, digging trenches, building forts of sticks and twine, moving imaginary cowboys, Indians, and soldiers through cataclysmic battles. Fifty years go by before I learn that one of my mother's sisters, a twin, had been stillborn in the same parlor. A stillborn twin, a sure sign of a curse on my grandmother's family. It was too much for my grandmother and her family to bear. No one must know. And there was another reason. There was no money for tiny burials. In the stillness and quiet of a black summer night, with waves of heat pouring down the valley and out across the rivers in the distance, with the heavy scent of honeysuckle hanging in the air, the tiny body was named, wrapped in my grandmother's prize quilt, and buried in a hand-duck grave beneath the tall grass just beyond the vegetable garden. But I do not grow up in my grandmother's house. I only visit there, and then I do not visit at all. And far away on the downside of my life, my grandmother a long time gone, I find the house gone too. There is nothing but a shallow imprint upon the earth. I lie down on the grass and stare upward in the pale steel sky, and I realize that had I too been stillborn, I would lie here forever, next to an aunt whose name I never knew. I close my eyes and smell the faint aroma of biscuits baking in a wood-burning stove. And that concludes our podcast remembrance of Lee Maynard, though not our remembrance of the man himself nor his work, which I suspect will outlast us all. You can find text versions of Pops Walker's The Maynard I Knew and Lee's Shenandoah River Songfest 2012 poem at our podcast website, podcast.wvwriters.org. There you will also find links to YouTube clips of Lee reading from his work, as well as our former president, the late Terry McNemer, honoring Lee at our Jug Awards ceremony in 2011. We also have links to all of Lee's books, including the audiobook he collaborated on with Mountain Whispers and Pops Walker. It's at podcast.wvwriters.org. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is composed by Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Greenbrier County.